Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to the second edition of Banking Weekly with me, Megan Murphy, investment banking correspondent at the Financial Times. Each week, we'll be bringing you the latest on what's been happening in the banking sector. I'm joined in the studio this week by Charlene Goff, retail banking correspondent, and Richard Stoven Bradford, Lex writer. Last night, the European Central Bank warned that the Eurozone's financial sector was facing, quote, hazardous contagion effects from the region's escalating debt crisis, with as much as 195 billion euros in write-downs still to come. Already jittery markets have responded today by sending bank shares lower, continuing the sell-off that has stalked the sector for months. Today we'll be talking about the contagion risks facing European banks as governments rush to put in place broad-ranging austerity programs that threaten to limit economic growth. We'll be asking whether the sell-off is overdone and which banks are likely to be hit hardest by the crisis. We'll also be looking at the ongoing debate over bankers' pay and whether recent shareholder agitation with the executive compensation pool at HSBC is a sign of things to come. But first, Richard, what's your take on the current Eurozone debt problems and their impact on the European banking sector? Two things, really. I think we must look at it at at two levels. There's the bank's exposure to sovereign debt in itself, which is relatively contained. And then there's the bank's exposure to the real economy. Now, if you if you think in the past week we've had Spanish bank failure, we've and it's been taken into the Bank of Spain's care. We've had savings banks being forced to merge by the Bank of Spain. We've had another downgrade of Spain by Fitch um, on top of Standard and Poor's last month. Um, so investors haven't really lacked for reason to ditch their shares. But which ones have been hardest hit? Inevitably, the ones um, with the greatest exposure, known exposure to sovereign debt, and that's France and Germany. Um, French and German banks have got about $670 billion of exposure to Greece, Spain, and Portugal, according to the Bank for International Settlements. And so their banks have been the hardest hit. Um, Credit Agricole is now trading at about uh, 0.65 times book value, which uh, is probably about where it's going to be for other banks as their exposures become clear. But let's remember that this is happening at two levels. We've got the real economy and the sovereign debt one. If we go back to the um, real economy exposure, then we can start looking at figures from, say, Evolution Securities on total lending exposure to Spain. And we see that Barclays, which has an operation on the ground in Spain, has about 31 billion euros of lending exposure to Spain. Royal Bank of Scotland has about 30.2 billion. Deutsche Bank, which also has an operation on the ground in Spain, has 21.4. So that's just taking Spain. It just shows you a little bit that investors are, are not wrong. They haven't got any lack of reasons to be ditching these shares at the moment. You you said you, you think the contagion risk is actually relatively contained in terms of direct exposure to sovereign. Now, a lot of bankers that I've been speaking to, and I was over in Paris last week, are saying that they feel that the sell-off has been overdone. They feel, for example, if you take BNP Paribas, 5 billion euros in direct exposure to Greece sovereigns, even taking a worst-case scenario of a 20% haircut, that's still only a billion euro loss, you know, as one banker said, essentially a month's work. I mean, is the market confusing 
overall contagion effects with, uh, with respect to a larger economic downturn across the southern Eurozone? And are people confusing the sort of direct possibility of Greek defaulting? Yeah, well, I think Richard's point that you've got these two layers now, you've got the sort of direct sovereign debt, and then you've got the broader exposure to the real economy. And banks so far have only really put figures on their direct debt, and they are much, much smaller figures. Like you mentioned there, 31 billion euros of exposure to Barclays, but their sovereign debt exposure is much, much less, I think only around a billion. So they've kept those numbers, you know, that, well, they're the, the numbers that they're giving out, but the broader exposure is becoming a real problem, and I don't think we've seen the full effects of that yet. But I think on the actual direct exposure to sovereign debt has been overblown a little bit and banks actually haven't got that much exposure, particularly the UK banks. They've really kept it to a minimum there. I mean, are you saying there's a transparency issue here in terms of what banks revealed about the possibility of their loan book souring? I mean, obviously in Spain, a lot of those loans are massive commercial and residential property loans, which were we to see a significant tailing off are, are absolutely at risk. This is something we've been expecting for quite some time and the Spanish property market collapse is a known known, but What is is a real area of uh, uncertainty is the extent to which Spanish banks have really taken the full amount of provisions they should have done. And I think the the forced merger of the Cajas, the regional savings banks, is is really a sign that that perhaps it hasn't happened as honestly as it might. And in some of the major banks, we've seen conversion of debt to equity to avoid having to make write-downs. And that is a another, if you like, suspicion indicator that is drawing attention to things. But I suppose, yes, going back to Charlene's point, I mean, Barclays has got 5.7 billion euros of exposure to spend sovereign risk, for example, compared to its 31 lending exposure into the real economy. There, the sovereign exposure is worrying in a headline way because its economic growth is so sluggish and um, it grew by 0.1% in the first quarter. Then there's the separate issue of uh, one in five Spaniards being unemployed because many of them lost their jobs in the in the property market collapse. They were in the construction industry. It's very hard to retrain builder bobs to become become executives in other companies overnight. So I think there's a there's a very real feeling that the economy in Spain is going to recover much more slowly than even the government in Madrid thinks. And actually, to back up that point, there was a quite an interesting report out today from uh, Standard & Poor's, the credit ratings agency, that actually warned that house prices were likely to dip again all over Europe and that even though you know Spain particularly has been really badly hit over the last couple of years that there is going to be further pain to come there and that you know there could be sort of falls of like uh, around 12 or 15 percent in house prices across the country sort of over the next year. How does this fit into the wider issue in in your two opinions about how likely we are to see a full-blown sort of double dip a full-blown sort of banking crisis for lack of a better word across the sector I mean a lot of the commentary in recent days has focused on the fact that that while the U.S. and U.K. banks took aggressive steps to restructure their balance sheets, to you know, reduce risk, to get their capital bases in place for future regulatory changes, that the Eurozone banks have not been as diligent or as forward-looking in doing this. And how does that set us up for a potential problems across the sector moving forward? I mean, do you think that that's certainly the case? It varies from country to country, but my, my gut feeling is that a large amount of, say, Germany's exposure to the ailing peripheral economies of the Eurozone is actually within their Landesbank and then within their savings banks, and those, those are unlisted, and so we will probably never gain the kind of transparency we might hope for with, say, Commerzbank or Deutsche Bank. But it's interesting what you were saying, Megan, about the, the UK banks and 
uh, how they've kind of restructured their balance sheet because we really did see at the beginning of last year them take these enormous hits on their bad loans. Like Lloyd's Banking Group, for example, took £24 billion of credit impairments for last year, which was an enormous number. RBS as well took an enormous hit uh, last year. And actually, we've both seen both of those banks and HSBC and Barclays kind of very much signal the peak of impairments. Um, And they saw a big improvement in the second half of last year, another big improvement in the first quarter of this year, and they seem to be on the road to recovery a little bit. But we haven't seen that so much in Europe. We haven't seen that sort of big drive to kind of absorb those credit losses early. They've been a lot slower to come through, and it means the banks are actually set for another bad year this year and another bad year next year. So that combined with the fact that you've got the sort of new austerity measures coming in and, you know, the government sort of tightening back their spending, um, which could sort of limit the provision of credit, could put up uh, the price of mortgages if we're seeing these sort of eurozone bonds go up in price. And all of these... Charlene, haven't we seen, I mean, we've seen near record earnings from some of, you know, BNPP, for example, near record earnings, you know, in the in the first in the first quarter, and uh, in particular in certain areas of their business, they had they had record earnings in fixed income, for example. Mm. And you know, they would argue that this is actually a crisis of confidence that, in the wake, as particularly of a one trillion euro bailout, that is seems to be a credible plan, seems to be a well thought out plan, seems to be designed to you know alleviate any funding pressures, any liquidity pressures in the market that has the support across the eurozone. Is there any surprise that that hasn't, what it seems, done enough to calm fears? Certainly, the the, the French banks you mentioned, um, and if we perhaps look at Société Générale, they they have been reporting relatively good French domestic um, performance, and the Eastern Europe exposure has turned out to be less concerning than at first thought. So maybe you have a point there that there is a little bit of getting overshooting on on the punishment meted out on the French banks. Also, I think another point is that it's the kind of investment banking divisions that have been really driving this performance. Whether that's sustainable throughout the year is yet to be to be seen. They had a very strong first quarter, but it's kind of the retail banking arms that are still, you know, afflicted by these by these economic problems. They could get worse, particularly if the housing markets get worse. Well, that leads us almost directly on to our next issue today in terms of investment banking. Is obviously with sort of the very strong results we've seen and the results we've seen, we'll have to see second quarter earnings. But you know, from all all indications that there hasn't been a significant slowdown in in most parts of the market. We saw a bit of a what I would guess a mini shareholders revolt, a sort of you know agitation last week at HSBC's annual general meeting about their pay structure. We've seen again this morning Numura tripling total pool of pay for their top executives. We had such a furor about this at the end of the year, Charlene. How are we going to see this flow through this year? I think there's still a way to go with it. And I, I definitely don't think the whole sort of furora over pay is, has gone away, to be honest. I mean, HSBC, that has, with regards to HSBC, that's been a long problem and shareholders have been agitated, as you say, on that for some time now. And that's a slightly different issue. Their problems there are really around the, the, the actual fixed salaries that the Mike Geegan the chief executive and the finance director are getting and the company are very keen to push through big salary rises for their chief executives they feel that they're underpaid compared with sort of global rival investment banks and so on and they want to push through those pay rises so it's not so much a bonus issue but I think generally executive pay is still going to be a very sensitive issue it will still be on the front pages we've got a lot a lot to look forward to in the way the story plays out there. 
Richard, I want to get your thoughts on this next point, because it's one of the things that always fascinates me in this debate is, in theory and in practice, this industry has historically been, and investment banking side in particular, a sort of pay-for-performance mantra in terms of awarding compensation and bonuses. Um, in other words, if you make a lot of money, you're going to earn a lot of money. If you don't, you're going to get a zero. And and one of the things that's interesting is you mentioned, Charlene, you mentioned Barcap. We're also looking at Goldman with what's going on there and whether you know Lloyd Blankfein will be able to credibly take home a big package this year. But where does it become the line is drawn where if you're Bob Diamond and your unit earns, as it did this year, you know, a huge amount of money for the bank, where does it become almost a credibility gap if you say, well, I'm not going to take a bonus? And as a shareholder in a universal bank, you actually want the investment banking arm to do well at the moment. The investment banks are actually carrying the show. If you look at Barclays, for example, or Deutsche Bank, it was pretty much entirely an investment banking performance, less a commercial bank one. I always look back to uh, years ago, I used to work for S.G. Warburg, now UBS, and the um, founder of that bank had a rule of thumb. He said that if you made if you made a profit, you put one-third aside for staff, one-third aside for shareholders, and one-third aside for a rainy day. And I think that's not a bad, a bad split. In a funny kind of way, um, we've begun to see comp levels, compensation levels, falling to about 35% from from way above that. It's quite obvious that there's some kind of reason there. But if I were a shareholder in a universal bank right now, I would be, uh, I'd be extremely worried if, if my staff started walking out the door. Well, so it'll be interesting to see what happens when we do start getting these tighter or more expensive uh, capital requirements and so on. And also if banks start having to pay a levy that's been this idea that's been mooted for a while. You know, if banks are having to put much more, more of their funds towards those sorts of measures, will that affect how much they can afford to pay in compensation? Um, and, you know, we've got these people saying, well, you know, if banks are saying they can't afford the levy, well, then how can you afford to pay nearly 40% of your profits of that? Um, um, sorry, of your, of your income as comp, you know, so it'll be interesting to see whether there's a kind of knock-on effect of those when we start seeing those new regulations coming in. Now, how much of this is smoke and mirrors in terms of people are always going to find a way to get pay? I mean, we've seen various different codes implemented across the Eurozone and in the U.S. in terms of trying to restrict pay and, and trying to draw closer links between risk and compensation etc. But how much of this is is just smoke around the periphery where at the end of the day, the same structures are in place, the same people, you know, there may be headline figures who pass on their bonuses, who waive it to sort of for political reasons, for public, you know, public relations purposes, but that the main key players are still taking home pretty much what they did before the crisis. Yeah. And also that shareholders are still voting in favor of the remuneration uh, Reports. I mean, that's the thing. They had their chance at the recent AGMs that we've seen happening in the last month or so. And while there has been something of a revolt, like HSBC we were talking about earlier, I think 13% of shareholders voted against the pay policy. But it still got through by a sort of overwhelming majority. So I think it's a lot of talk and a lot of people saying, look, this is outrageous. But actually when it comes to it, you know, people know this is the way it works. Shareholders vote in favour and nothing really changes. Maybe maybe um, institutional investors are looking too at the fact that we need these divisions to keep keep building capital for the banks through retained profits. I think too that there's um, there's probably got, got to be some kind of move though towards including the capital cost um, before paying out these bonuses or making some kind of very obvious adjustment so that 
there is greater alignment between shareholders and and the employees of these banks. I, I, I think Barclays Capital already begins to make some kind of economic profit calculation, and that that that's probably the way things should start to move. But while while things are still quite shaky, and while banks face an uncertain regulatory burden at the moment, I, I think anyone that comes up with a, another clampdown on bonuses is probably going to kill the goose. Well, we'll have to see how that plays out as we head toward the end of this month now. Uh, banks will be closing their books. And another fascinating debate on Banking Weekly. We'll have to look to see how the shares react this week if, if we see further tremors in the market, particularly in the wake of, you know, if the Prudential deal collapses as as it looks like it might. So all that's left today is to thank uh, Charlene Goff and Richard Stoven Bradford for being here this week and to thank you for listening. The Banking Weekly is produced by LG Filatroni. Until next week. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.